What do you think is more powerful, masks or layers? What is more essential? Um, you could kind of take it either way. I think they, they go hand in hand, right? Without masks, layers wouldn't be valuable. And without layers, there'd be no reason to have a mask. Uh, so I guess they're kind of one in the same to me. But ultimately, I think the part that's hard to understand, the part where you need to invest time is the masking to understand how to create an appropriate mask and then to understand how you can create layers that can take advantage of your masks. So I think that the masking side is the more complicated side. This is episode number 34 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast, the show in which we talk all about retouching and post-production. This is the podcast in which we take a deep dive into common retouching techniques, best practices, and have you peek behind the scenes of the image-making process. The show is brought to you by our high-end retouching studio, Boutique Retouching, and the online educational platform LearnPostProduction.com. My name is Daniel. I am your host and the founder CEO of Boutique Retouching. Before we get started with today's episode, though, producing such a podcast takes quite some time and dedication. If you appreciate what we are doing here, if you enjoy listening to the show and If you get some value out of it, I'd be happy to know you hit that subscribe button in whichever podcasting app you are using and for you to become a long-term listener to the show. Also, if you would like to interact with us, if you have any questions, go to our website, boutiqueretouching.com, write a comment there, uh, write us an email and yeah, interact with us and let us know how you like the podcast. So now I'm excited to introduce Greg Benz, the inventor of the Lumenzia panel, and he's my guest in today's episode. So for people who do not know you, because they might know the panel, they might know maybe some tutorials from you, but they maybe don't know you by name. So let's have you introduce you for how you would give your elevator pitch. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so uh, so my name is Greg Benz. I'm a uh, landscape photographer based out of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the states. And um, my uh, my focus as a photographer is a combination of my own photography as well as being a software developer and instructor. So I spend a lot of time learning about and teaching about and using luminosity math. So I think a lot of people kind of know me for that. But my own my own work is kind of focused on landscape, cityscape type work. Though I've kind of done a little bit of everything over the years. So. That's kind of my, my home base is Luminosity Masks. Yeah, and people can go to your website, gregbensphotography.com, where they can learn about Luminosity Masks, what you're doing. But you just said you are a software developer. So this episode potentially could get a little bit geeky, just for the listeners to be aware of. So I have no problem going deep into some topics here. So just to be aware of. Um, now let's go back. So for how long do you think you're in this using Photoshop and what was your first time discovering this program and how did it came to be? Uh, well, for me, Photoshop's something I've been using for almost 20 years. I really got kind of hooked on photography when I was living in London back in 2000 and I uh, was shooting film back then, but using Photoshop after I scanned the, the negatives and such. And it's just kind of snowballed since then. So really almost uh, 20 years for me of, of using Photoshop. The luminosity masking, that's something I dove into I was something like five, six years ago and, and that gotten really serious in the last few years, but it wasn't something I kind of picked up or figured out until a little bit later. I mean, it's definitely the more advanced end of uh, Photoshop. 
there's obviously techniques in Photoshop that come to people more naturally without having to spend a lot of time or not investing a lot of time. And others, they require more knowledge overall to um, make them work for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think as an educator and as a photographer, both my goal has been to try and understand things that are complicated and boil them down into things that are more simple. I mean, Lumenzia, my software actually started as something I did for myself because I thought that luminosity masking was a little too, too uh, cerebral, too academic. And I wanted to work as an artist and I could sort of, you know, think with the left side of my brain or the right side of my brain, but I couldn't do both at the same time. And so, you know, I'm always trying to think about techniques or tools that I can create so that when I do my photography work, I can just think like an artist and not be thinking like an engineer. Yeah, but then there are very few people who say like, oh, this doesn't exist in Photoshop. I'm just going to create this myself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not the normal path. I mean, a lot of people play around with things like actions and, and stuff like that. But I guess for me, there was enough pain. I was just highly motivated to dive in. And I had a little bit of background with software enough to kind of get going and, and sort of figure things out. Awesome. I assume that stuff is still done in ActionScript. So there's a few different ways you can kind of build onto Photoshop um, with extension panels like mine. Uh, it's written in JavaScript. And basically what you're looking at is like a little web page with just a lot of complicated JavaScript on the background telling Photoshop what to do. It's not technically a plugin, which would be its own standalone software written in more advanced computing languages, but it's, it's pretty powerful what you can do. It's, it's way beyond an action. You can you know, have Photoshop respond in much more intelligent and interesting ways when you start to create an extension panel like that. Yeah, sure. So when you first learned about photography, not about photography, about like Photoshop, what were the first things you were doing and how did that evolve over time? So how was your path of learning the application? You know, I, I started with a lot of just experimentation and reading books and that sort of thing and self-learning. And, and over the years, I realized that working with other people was a much faster path to go to workshops, to go out shooting with other photographers, to edit side by side, just spending time with other people who can help you think differently and push you along and, and learn more interactively. So I, I feel like I kind of learned Photoshop the hard way in a sense. And in some ways that gave me more of a, a technical foundation for things. because I read a lot of kind of technical type information to learn it, but it's also a slow and tedious way to really figure things out. And if I went back, I would, I would do it in a totally different way. I think there's much faster ways to learn Photoshop now than there was 20 years ago. Oh, definitely. Um, I mean, the resources are much more widespread than they used to be. But wasn't it also intimidating, like going this route of having this technical approach and always thinking like, oh, this, I mean, there is so many things to do in Photoshop and some people get lost trying to do it and trying to get things done or learn it by themselves. Yeah, I've always found that the The times when I get lost most or the times when I see other photographers getting lost is when you're sort of just trying things out without a purpose. And the thing that's always helped me figure out what I need to do much more quickly and help me get to much better results is having a clear vision of what I want to do. And a lot of times that starts with just when you're out in the field or wherever you're taking your picture, envisioning the end result. So you, you know, capture the right image. And then when you're processing it, really think about what you want to do to it versus just playing with a bunch of sliders or options or things like that, really having a clear idea of, you know, when I'm done, this is what I want to do to the image. I want to make the sky more colorful and I want to add some detail here. And I want to 
brighten this area and I want to shade this area, but having that sort of artistic vision of what you want to do, once you know where you want to take things, there's usually a way to get there in Photoshop. And if you're motivated enough and know where you want to go, you'll usually figure it out. Yeah, I imagine it the same with programming because learning to program is one thing, but if you don't have something that you want to achieve, it's really hard to put stuff together. Yeah, it's even more so because when you write software, you have to tell it something explicit to do. You can't just sure. kind of you mess around. So it actually enforces a lot of discipline that way. Yeah, but being disciplined in Photoshop is a good thing too. I always tend to say to people, if you cannot tell a reason why you make a change, you shouldn't make it. Yeah, I always like to think about having an end goal, but also keeping an open mind. And I think that's part of the learning that sometimes you have these happy little accidents or you have a certain way of doing things and suddenly someone shows you a totally different way of doing it. It happens to me all the time when I'm teaching Photoshop that somebody who has come to me to learn from me ends up teaching me something completely new because there's some feature I didn't know about or something that I just assumed wasn't going to work because it didn't work one time, but it worked on this image or whatever. So you can, you can get a little bit too rigid in your thinking. So it's always good to have that open mind as you're working towards a goal. That's true. And there are always these magical moments, a curtain falls and you make, and you have this click moment. It's like, ah, okay, this is how it works. And for me, that was this magical thing. Like I do a lot of beauty retouching and thinking about dodging and burning. I mean, the technique is very easy to explain to someone at the base, but then there's the application aspect of it and what you actually do with it and how and where and how much you apply to make a change. Once that happens, it's like, oh, I all of a sudden understand why and how to do stuff. And that's fascinating. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that moment when you suddenly, you know, you move from kind of experimentation or doing something haphazard and start to understand the why, the reason. Oh, you know, when I do this thing, it gives a good result or it solves this problem. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's see. From all the years, there's always something that amazes me. Um, with some things, you get frustrated over the years, like the, the update schedule and stuff. <laughs> there's always some new thing to learn. <laughs> yeah, sure. But also they break stuff every update. Well, I'm guilty of that too. I'm always, you know, having to fix little bugs. I think that's just part of software, but yeah, hopefully uh, you're making more uh, progress than uh, problems. Yeah, I hope so. So what I always do with people is I go over the hardware and the software that they're using. And I think we start with the hardware and then we dive into the software tools that you're using aside from Photoshop. And then that would be a nice jump to go from there to talking about Lumenzia, how that came to be. So um, you are a photographer, obviously. Uh, let's talk about like how you structure your work. When, when you offload your images from your card, how is your workflow there? And what hardware are you actually using to edit on? So uh, I'm always importing directly into Lightroom. I use that to manage everything. And I pretty much use it to process the raw for just about everything. That's definitely kind of the, the foundation. Everything's imported into a, a MacBook Pro that I use. Um, I've got it set up where I've got the home set up where I can get into my office and uh, you know I've got plenty of storage and all that kind of stuff, but I have it set up in a way where when I'm traveling, I generally have as much access as I can to my file. So I'm using, for example, smart previews in Lightroom. So I've got access to the full catalog in case I need to post on social media or I want to start working on a batch of images to just start processing the, the raw files, just something like that while I'm traveling. So I definitely think very much about how do I create a, a simple setup for me 
that's going to work for, you know, my overall kind of travel schedule so that, you know, one laptop works really well that way. And, and so that keeps the hardware pretty simple too. There's not a lot of add-ons or things like that. It's just a, a MacBook Pro running um, for the most part, Lightroom Photoshop and software I've added on top of Photoshop. Yeah. And see, that's how people are different. I imagine like me and other retouchers, they like to be stationary basically because we are like to be in control of our environment, not having changes in light, changes in reflection on the monitor and stuff like this. But you as a photographer, someone who is doing travel and landscape and the cityscape work, I mean, yeah, you have to edit stuff on the go and that makes total sense. So in terms of like, how do you set up backups then? Do you just work with the smart previous then or do you have another backup solution that can travel with you? Oh, absolutely. I've got a, a couple of different blog posts on my website I could you know, link to that show my overall backup setup, but I'm using clones. I'm using Time Machine. I've got remote backups. I've got multiple clones, really bootable clones. For example, my uh, laptop had some issues this past year. And when I had to get a, a loaner, I was able to boot a, a loaner laptop within a few minutes off of a, a solid state drive bootable clone that I had. So I think not just in terms of making sure I don't lose my work, I try to think also in terms of how am I going to avoid a situation where I can't keep working? Because for me, you know, if I don't have a computer for a week, then I'm, I'm really not doing much of any work for a week. So it's, it's very important to me that I don't have any downtime. So I have a lot of different layers to, uh, to that whole process. I always stress the fact of making backups because usually what happens is people think about backups when it's too late for them. But also, yeah, what you just mentioned is having a copy of your actual boot drive that you can just plug in into a laptop or any laptop. And there are tons of accessories around that. So you can get enclosures for these to plug it in to USB in case you cannot swap out the hard drive from that loaner. And yeah, that's something to think about when you're on the road or if you if some researcher out there who's listening, if they are also the tech guy at the production and have to run the, the equipment. So that's something to think about. So the, you just mentioned the gear that you're using. So I will, in the show notes, I will put the links not only to the website, but I will also put the link to your gear section. And later on, we will be talking about the software you have created on top of Photoshop, which is called Lumensia. And we will put the link in the show notes as well. So let's talk about that. As we have talked about, you're using Lightroom and Photoshop, and on top of that, you have created software. So how did that come to be? Uh, well, as I was mentioning earlier, it, it really started with this challenge that I understood the capabilities of luminosity mass, and I had been sort of creating them manually. I had tried a few other things, but I just felt like it was too difficult. So for those who don't know what luminosity masks are, when you want to go in and you want to create a mask or a selection in Photoshop, which the purpose of that is going to be because you want to work on a specific thing. So for me as a landscape photographer, I might be selecting the sky to make it you know, less blown out, more colorful. I might select shadows in the foreground to add more detail. Someone else who's a portrait retoucher might be doing things like trying to select the highlight and shadow for dodging and burning to sculpt you know, someone's uh, muscular arm or select the whites of the eyes or the, the blue of their of someone's eyes or things like that to, to work on those different things. So to be able to create those masks and selections for me was too cumbersome. And so that really set me off on this path of trying to figure out a simplified way of doing that. And for me, a lot of that was to be more visual, 
because ultimately, I think what makes um, mass and selections, you know, so difficult is sometimes they're hard to envision or hard to really control. Whereas all I'm looking for is a way of saying, yes, that selection is going to target that sky or it's going to target that shadowy foreground. And what I've created is software that lets me do that visually so I can get to the result I want and I can see it right on screen to know, yep, that's going to target the area I want. But ultimately, it's created from, from the image. And that's the idea of the luminosity mass. It's the luminosity of the pixels or the color or any number of different attributes of the image that you can use to help create the mask or the targeting, which makes sense, right? You're using the image content to define for Photoshop what you want to work on in the image. Yeah, true. And also for those who now might be thinking is like, oh, why is it so difficult to envision like these masks? Let's consider you going into channels and make a selection by control clicking or is it command clicking on, on Mac, I guess. On a channel, you make a selection, but then you get these marching ends and you, you're you not seeing the transitions, like what the real mask is like looking like. And that makes it really difficult to judge. It's like, do, do I actually include what I want? To because there's this transition area and the marching ends are around these these 50% of what is selected around that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, yeah, it makes it really hard. And also in portrait, it's important to to make luminance or luminosity masks uh, if you want to create depth in a face or on a body. It's an easy way to to do that without spending a lot of manual work on it. So how could someone now envision who doesn't know Lumencia, how is it helpful to their workflow? How does it help them to get these technical aspects out of the way and focus more on the application side? Right. So let's, let's say that you had an image and you, you had a portrait of somebody and you wanted to dodge and burn it so that you took the existing highlight and shadow and made it even stronger. So you're creating a little bit more of that sense of a three-dimensional face in the two-dimensional plane of an image. And if you just increase contrast, you'd be changing the highlight and shadow, but that would just sort of globally change contrast. It's not very artistic. It's not very controlled. But if you dodge and burn, you can be much more precise and go in and say, I'm going to just raise the highlights on the cheekbones and the tip of the nose and you know the bridge of the nose or, or just you know specific little areas like that. And if you try and do it freehand in Photoshop, then you're just painting with a round brush and it doesn't have a lot of, well, there's no real protection when you do that, right? So you can accidentally paint outside the intended area. And that's where people are messing up. Um, they change all of a sudden the lighting and the facial structure and having a luminance mask will preserve you from doing that. Right, exactly. So, uh, so a luminance mask or really any mask or any selection is essentially like giving you a stencil. And normally, if you use some of the simple selection tools in Photoshop, the selection is either fully uh, protected or it's you know fully available to you. So you make these hard selections and you end up with hard edges that don't look very natural. Whereas with a luminance mask or selection, it'll naturally feather off because take, for example, that idea of like the highlight on the bridge of the nose. As you move towards the edge of the nose, it moves towards shadow, but it doesn't just, it's not like these are the shadow pixels and these are the highlight pixels. It's more, these are the brighter pixels and these are kind of sort of bright and these are in the middle and these are darker and there's a range. We have the gradation within the range. Exactly. And so when you work with a luminosity mask or selection, you're able to preserve and work with that natural gradation so that you preserve 
what's in the image and it looks natural and you get to a beautiful result that doesn't necessarily look photoshopped or kind of overdone to so get a much more clean and, and natural look that way. I, I guess that makes sense. So uh, let's talk about the panel itself. So there are some features. So I know you have this main component, which is the luminance mask, which is actually relatively nice. So you have this gradation map basically and have different buttons that visually tell you roughly uh, how the percentage is and what you're selecting out of the image. That I find interesting. What else is there? Um, maybe let's have you explain what is there, like talking about vibrance and saturation and what other stuff you can do with the panel. Yeah, so I, I tend to you know, describe it as being comprised of three major components. There are a bunch of buttons up top that let you create a preview. So before you commit to a mask or selection, you can see a preview and you can click through the different buttons to try and find the one that's going to best fit your image. So for example, if you're going to try and select highlights, there's a bunch of buttons that are marked with an L. And so you can click on that for L meaning lights. And you can click on different versions of it where something like, you know, L2 is sort of a general highlights where something like L5 is much more restrictive to the brightest highlights in the image. But it gives you that ability to kind of find the best fit. It's like a, it's like a preset in a way. And then once you find it, you can customize it and get the exact preview you want. So you can make it more or less selective of the shadows. You can make it more or less selective of say like green and blue in the image or uh, reds and yellows, whatever you want to do. There's a lot of flexibility to change that preview, but it's an interactive, what you see is what you get preview that you can then convert into a mask or a selection. And so that second part is turning that preview into something. And once you apply it, um, you have several different options there where you can create standard layer types. There's uh, sharpening, vignetting, a, a bunch of different options where you can output that mask or that selection as you want to. But basically, it's just designed to convert what you've already created into something useful. And then oftentimes, when you create a luminosity mask or selection, the initial version is not absolutely perfect. And so you may want to make little refinements. So the third part of Lamenti is all about making those little tweaks so that you can, for example, if you select all the highlights in the image, you might not necessarily want to work on all the highlights. You might want to narrow it down to just particular highlights, maybe just the highlights uh, in the face, but not the background behind the person. And so that refinement section lets you sort of tweak that and, and get more precise as you go through it. So it's really just kind of, you know, previewing, applying, and then refining. Those are kind of the three main activities in Lamenzia. Uh, beyond that, it has some built-in tools for visualization to help understand things. For example, if you have a luminosity selection, you already mentioned how the marching ants are not very useful. Well, there's a button in Lamenti you can click on, and it'll show you a temporary preview of what your current selection is to see exactly what you're working with. And it's just a lot more useful way. It makes more sense when you know what a luminosity mask is and how it varies. But those sorts of visualization tools just help you work more precisely and, and have more control over the process. Yeah, definitely. I mean, having this visual reference is what actually will be selected is amazing. And yeah, again, like Photoshop, marching hands, they are not helpful at all. In most cases, you either, except for maybe when you're doing a super basic selection on a channel and pushing curls slightly and then adjust a little bit, but it's not really exact. You cannot go by, okay, I'm going to select exactly what I want. Uh, Yeah, sometimes it's frustrating while doing it without such a helpful tool. 
Well, I, I'm curious to know how, how you use luminosity mass in your work. What's, um, what's your approach with, the, with your, your portraiture? Um, so I do two types of dodging and burning, basically. One is to correct flaws, uh, which I do by hand. And then after that, when I have gotten rid of all the flaws, then I often use luminosity masks to create this depth. Because when you do it first, obviously you will enhance some of the flaws that are present. So um, kind of more of a finishing touch for me. Um, yeah, in, in most cases, like over 90%, I would say. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so when you say flaws, you're largely talking about discoloration of the skin or are you talking about pores or what are you talking about? Um, so like in skin, you have different levels of texture, not only pores, and um, but there's a, a, a mid-sized texture that some plodges going on and uh, we usually dodge them away. And they sometimes are a combination of color and light, but mostly the biggest issues, they're usually in, in light. So most work is going to be done in dodging and burning to correct that. But it's very detailed. Okay. So we sometimes do masks just to visualize what we've done with it. I don't know if you have seen that. They look a little bit like zombies or you just output the dodge and burn mask on a black background or something. Yeah, in Lamenzia, you can click the dodge button and it'll actually show you your dodging and burning on its own. So you can see just the uh, the dodging and burning. And in the next update, I'm going to make it where you can actually edit that directly. So for quality control reasons, that'll help you yeah. find areas where maybe you painted over the line or yeah. you were, were uneven in your application of the dodging and burning or things like that. Oh, you will get a lot of questions uh, from people asking how you can make a colored mask instead of a black and white. When you say a color mask, what do you When I post images like of the dodging and burning, I usually not have just the black and white, so I overlay a color mm, yes. of what has been dodged. And then people come and ask, like, how can I create a colored mask? And I'm like, you overlay a color? <laughs> and then they ask, like, so how is it helpful? It's just for visualization. It's not helpful at all. But I, I guess you will get some of these questions as well then. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, when you say color mask, you're talking about the preview of the mask and you can do that in Lamenti as well. So you can do it as an overlay or you can do it as a gray layer. There's a lot of flexibility. So you gave me a lot of great things to think about when you're talking about your workflow. So I thought I might mention a few things. Um, you mentioned like saturation mapping. That's something that's built into Lamentia. So one of the preview buttons, you click on it and you can select everything that has high saturation or you can click another button for everything that's low saturation. So that can be great for things like out of gamut colors, or if you want color specific vibrance, which doesn't exist in Photoshop and Lightroom. Um, you talked about you know, retouching some of those defects or there may be some differences in light. There's actually a, a functionality in Lamenzia that will compare each pixel to its neighbors. So you can pick out the pixels that are brighter or darker than the surroundings. So that might be a way of picking out little areas of micro contrast where there's pores or little things that maybe are responding to the light. Um, of course, there's all the luminosity mask to help with dodging and burning where you want to work on highlights or shadows or even mid-tones where you want to pick out specific features of the face by tonality or, or color, that sort of thing. Um, so a lot of, a lot of flexibility with, with those different areas. But ultimately, I think I would assume that in, in portrait work, you know, you're going to be very focused on dodging and burning. So you know, having that ability to really visualize things, I find helps a lot because when you dodge and burn, you can't see your luminosity selection. And then when you're dodging and burning, you can't really see what you've dodged and burned. And Lomenzi has tools 
that are either already built into it or they're coming very soon in version eight that are going to give you the ability to see the, the selection you're working with, see the exact dodge and burn, and even edit that dodge and burning while you're working on it. So for example, if I was, you know, working on someone's cheek, I'm trying to dodge that cheek and I accidentally painted over the line out of the background, that might not be obvious at first when you're doing the dodging and burning because it gets blended into the image. But with these tools to isolate and visualize in Lumenzia, you'll be able to look at that and see, oh, I can see where clearly my paint went, you know, outside the face and mm -hmm. under the background and I should go fix that. Oh, that's interesting and neat. Yeah, see, see, let's see what what's coming in the next update. Do we have any schedule when you're going to uh, release it to the public? Uh, you know, I don't know right now. I had actually hoped that I would have launched it by now, but due to just some uh, complications in my <laughs> yeah, life has been pretty, uh, pretty crazy this summer, to say the least. All I can say is uh, hopefully soon. I don't really know that when that is, but it'll certainly be uh, this year. And this will be another free update for everyone who's got uh, Lumenzia. So it's going to be a great update. There's, there's actually, I think, already over 300 items on my change list, which makes it the biggest update I've ever made. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. So I hope people can appreciate how much work actually goes into not only creating, but maintaining such tools. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to make it seem simple. So I think in many ways I succeed when people don't know how much work I put into it, because I, I don't want people to think about the little things it does for you. You know, when it can anticipate your needs, it should just do things for you. And so I try to make a lot of things essentially invisible. And if you did it some other way, maybe you'd start to really notice the difference. But I think for the most part, when you use Lumenzia, it shouldn't be something you're thinking about too much. You should think about your photography. Yeah, it's the same with retouching and the approach. When you don't see that it has been retouched or what has been retouched, you've been successful. Absolutely, yeah. It's a good comparison, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think for sure that you know, most forms of photography, people want to keep things um, looking fairly natural. I mean, I know there's plenty of examples out there of totally crazy imagery, but I think having kind of a, a light touch in our work is oftentimes uh, most beautiful and what we're ultimately really going for. And it's nice to have the tools that'll help you do that in a more simplified way. Yeah, it is. I want to touch on something else. So you are working at home and on the go. So how do you balance this? So you just mentioned you try to keep everything as small as possible. But how do you make things like, I mean, obviously you get out to take pictures, but then you have to spend a lot of time in front of the computer working. Sometimes you are doing software where you're also sitting in front of the computer. So how does it work for you? How do you maintain your, your balance there in terms of like not getting issues with your back and all that stuff? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think one of the best things you can do if you're you know on the go or just trying to you know keep life simple is simplify your tools. Like don't bring everything. When I travel, I try not to bring more than three camera lenses. I bring my laptop. I've got a small Wacom tablet I use for retouching. I bring that with me. You know, so I usually have the tools I need on the road, but I keep it pretty simple. And if I add more camera gear, then I remove the other stuff. So for example, I use, uh, I've got these Merino wool t-shirts that I get that you can hand wash and then dry overnight and that kind of thing. So I might take off on a two week trip with four shirts, but that's all I need. And that keeps things a lot simpler. So I think coming back to that idea of just having a vision of what you want applies to so many things that I think about. And so when I'm traveling, I really think about, all right, I'm going to need my laptop. I need just a few basic lenses to get the job done. It's easy to go overboard and try and grab all the gear. Certainly I've tried to do that. If I don't have the right perfect tilt shift lens or whatever, 
that the sacrifice there is very small. Whereas if I bring everything, what ends up happening is I make big sacrifices in terms of I don't want to carry it and I don't go out or I don't pull up my camera or whatever. So yeah, I'd rather focus on something that gets me really close to the best possible result in an efficient way rather than try and uh, prepare for every possibility. And then that just actually slows me down in the long run. Yeah, definitely. I've been there too, is that when I take a camera with me, is most of the time it's too much gear and what's happening is you're not taking any images because you don't want to lug around that stuff. But speaking about stuff, you have a Wacom tablet. So for editing, do you have a home setup basically or a tablet that is at home and a different tablet that you can travel with? My, my setup is really, really simple. So I have an office setup and the office setup is ultimately about having a larger monitor and, you know, just in a predictable place. Um, the Wacom tablet I have at home is a little bit bigger because it can be, but I don't really need it to be. They're very simple. The, you know, I don't program the buttons or anything like that. I just want to use the pen because the ergonomics of holding a pen are so much better than a mouse. That's what I love about a Wacom is just the physical thing that I'm touching. So my home setup is pretty simple. I, you know, when I plug into uh, you know the office, then I've got all my additional files that I can't necessarily take with me on the road. But you know I've got plenty of storage on the go. I you know invested in my laptop to make sure I've got a large internal drive and I can bring other, you know, you can get solid state drives now pretty cheap. I've seen my favorite two terabyte solid state drive now is a little over $200. So there's not a lot of restrictions I find. Probably the biggest thing is just for me, I'm always working towards printing because ultimately I want to print very large images and hang them on a client's wall. And so, you know, making sure that I've got a process where I know what my limits are when I'm traveling and I'm still working with a color calibrated screen, but you know, making sure I'm not making any mistakes. And I've really figured out the differences between kind of my perfect office setup and my pretty good, but not perfect uh, laptop on the go setup. And I would feel comfortable doing a, an entire, you know, client job on the road if I had to. I mean, I would prefer not to, but um, it really doesn't slow me down in terms of being able to look for quality issues, color issues, Uh, you know, having enough detail in the shadows for printing. I've, I've kind of worked out what I need to know so that when I'm working on this more glossy, small laptop screen, I still have a good ability to create great work that I can stand behind. And I know that when I send a, a client a bunch of super large canvas prints that they're going to look great no matter how I produced them. Yeah, but maybe let's talk a little bit about printing because to me also, I come from the printing industry um, before I picked up retouching. And it is something many people struggle with. Uh, many photographers and many retouchers because like they just hand off files and they have very little insight to what's happening there and how they actually prepare files. So do you have a, a certain method like a little checklist, maybe what you always check before things go to print, like the what is going to be out of gamut and stuff like this. Oh, yeah. And, and we could spend days kind of going through the whole printing thing. Well, maybe but just a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, when, when I'm going to print things, um, you know, I, I have a process leading up to that point so that my layered master files, I've tried to work on them in a way that they're ready to print. But the first time I try and print a file, is where I'm going to go through with a fine tooth comb and look for every flaw. So for example, the smaller, you know, display size on my screen or social media, things like that, I might not see edge halos or problems like that, that are going to come out in a print. And so when I go to print, I'm going to zoom into the very fine detail 
and methodically move through the image. I just grab the scroll bars when it's zoomed in and slide through the image to look at part of it to find any sort of defects, little things that should be cloned out, halos, any problem areas to make sure that the master file is perfect. And I want to do that first because when I do that, then I can print that in any size I want and not have to redo that work. So I'm trying to make sure my master file has been perfected for print one time, and then I can make different size prints you know, from that file, but I don't have to redo that work. Usually for me, what I'm going to do is I turn the ruler on in Photoshop and then I zoom in so that the ruler is life size. So I have um, you know, a ruler inches for me and I zoom in until one inch in Photoshop on the screen is one inch in real life. And I know that that's the size my client would see printed. And that's what I'm going to move through to look for those defects. And that system works really well. And then from there, then I'm going to do all the things I need to do to, to make it print ready in terms of enlarging it, checking for any gamut issues, um, checking to make sure I'm not going to have problems with shadows, etc. A lot of that for me is just that close-up look, appropriate sharpening, and then soft proofing it to make sure that it looks acceptable for the for the output. And if it's a really important job, I might do a hard proof where I'll get a small sample print and just make sure that it looks the way I want. Or if it's a really difficult print, for example, sometimes I have images that the shadow detail is what makes it really gorgeous and there's a ton of shadows and they always look great on a monitor. Yeah, and then it goes on a thick paper with not a lot of contrast probably and that's really hard to print then. Exactly. And, and there's always that risk that you print your shadows too dark. I and mean, that's probably the biggest issue I see with at least landscape photography is we have a lot of shadow detail and everyone's got a super bright monitor and they end up making these prints that just don't hold up. They look too dark. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an art on its own. It's, uh, also, I imagine a lot of people, they are into these metal prints, which are super contrasty, but they don't factor in that their black point is much darker than what they can see on a monitor. And they have to figure out a way to make this work for them for not all the blacks being sucked up into like a black mush. Yeah, it's it's really critical. And I always encourage people to do some printing, even in You know, for people who don't do a lot of printing in general, um, I think it's especially important to understand what it takes to get a good file. Because once you start to print, you're going to expose flaws that aren't necessarily obvious on a monitor. And uh, if you're not actually doing some of that work yourself, it's hard to really learn those lessons, those, those visceral lessons where you, you understand your mistakes. So I think printing is just like one of the best exercises because ultimately, if you can make a good print, you can probably do anything. And it'll save you a lot of work. Because if you spend a bunch of time processing your images, but you're not thinking about the final print, you can end up in a place where your image is either not printable and has to be redone or requires a lot of work. And if it's the former, if you're redoing an image for print, then you might not match the exact look it had that your client approved on screen. And that's a whole new problem. So yeah, I, I think about printing a lot. Oh yeah. I have a story for that. So I had a friend reach out to me because I also do a lot of print stuff. And he had a client and they shot a very vibrant editorial or, or production, basically. And they had this super dark blue and very vibrant background. And he didn't know it was going to go into print, especially for not any print, not a wide gamut fine art print, but pre-press and... Then they came, hey, this doesn't print well. And I was looking at the files and like, there's no way to make this color in the process that they are going to print in. 
it's just not possible. And clients don't understand this. Yeah, it's really hard. Like I always also recommend is like try to figure things out. It's going to help you solve problems before they appear. It's like just being aware of what could happen with this project that you're working on to save you the hassle of trying to explain to a client later on, oh, this is not going to work how you intended to work. Yeah. And, and if it's a, you know, if it's a gamut issue like that, that's one thing, because you can sort of make global adjustments. But if you start getting into things like, you know, maybe on screen, the pores on a portrait were not significant, but in print they are. Well, now you have a gazillion little tiny things that need to be fixed in the image or something like that. It's usually, you know, like the edge of trees on a skyline where they're backlit and you got to watch for halos and that kind of stuff. And I used to have all sorts of halos and, and now I just get it right the first time because I've learned how to do that. And it's really important to me to make sure all my images can ultimately be printed because that's what I'd like to do with them. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that process definitely, I think you learn just so much in in printing about color management, thinking about the, the final intended use, about how the environment affects what you're displaying. I mean, I, you know, I don't just think about the print. I also think about where it's going. Is that thing going to be in artificial light? Is it going to be in direct daylight? I mean, that all those things will affect the way that it displays. Oh man, and again, now we're getting into some places where most people, they are just like uh, adjusting the print for the lighting condition as something that's over most people's hands. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that, that's actually like when you are displaying images, you could actually do that. You could say, okay, where is it going to hang? What light is going to be shining around that? And let's measure that and let's correct the print to make it look more neutral again under this lighting condition. Yeah, you know, like I, we just repainted our house and uh, we use this really light color that's like almost like kind of a tan color. And it's so close to a neutral that it changes throughout the day. So when it's in daylight or tungsten light, it looks tan. But at night, as the sun begins to fade, it looks gray. And when you turn on the lights at night, if you look in the shadow areas, they can look green or magenta. And I mean, really magenta and sometimes green. And so it's, it's the weirdest thing because you look at this thing and it's a very definitive paint color when you look in the paint store. But then we get home and you have all these different lights. It looks so different. And that's the thing that changes your, your images. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to go figure out how all that's going to work, but it's important to at least appreciate that that can happen and then think about, hey, if this is an important job, maybe I should look at the print under the same lighting conditions that they'll have or something close to it just to know that, you know, when I look at it under daylight at home, that it's going to look like the daylight in their location because otherwise you're you're leaving things to chance and it can really cause some serious problems. Yeah, sure. Now, when I think about, I just recently had this. So uh, I think every photographer and retoucher, they have these experiences in life where you think like nobody else is going to see this, but I noticed something that is bugging me. So I was at an event and they had a couches with um like the fabric they were using had such a weird color and texture that it looked like color noise in an image and it drove me crazy just looking at it <laughs> that was yeah. yeah really insane right well that's that's the thing you got to figure out i think as photographers we always tend to look a little too close at, at the problems and yeah it's important to make sure you have some perspective that's grounded in how your client is going to see something because you can spend a lot of time on things that don't matter too that's true Oh man, I think we could get lost in color management and that stuff. Now, when you think about the 
um, there are a lot of beginners and people who want to establish themselves in the industry. So uh, what would would be your number one or like your two favorite tips that you give people to, yeah, how they can establish themselves a little bit better in the industry, what they should focus on aside from color management and looking into luminosity masks. Yeah, maybe your number one or two best pieces of advice for those people. You know, I, I think probably the, the number one thing I, I'd say is, you know, make sure you really understand your audience. So the marketing of photography is so much more important than your photography. Yes, you have to be good, but the difference between a financially successful photographer and one who's not is not usually so much in their images, it's more in their business skills. And so I always push people to really understand what is your customer looking for? What's going to drive and motivate them? How do you um, really wrap your arms around the business? Because you know that's, that I think is where you'll be far more successful. I, I see too many photographers who spend way too much time focusing on the art and especially art they personally love. And that's great, but there's not many times in life when what gets you excited about photography is the same thing that gets your client excited about photography. And I'll give an example of that, where I was um, speaking with a guy who's, who's done a number of different art shows at like art fairs, and uh, he shoots flowers. And he had a, a woman at this show who wanted to buy this flower, and he, he was wrapping it up for her, and he was about to bring it up. and she started talking about the name of the flower and he said, and he corrected her. He said, no, 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 it's whatever. And he, he told her the, the actual name of the flower and she said, oh, I don't want it. And, and what he failed to appreciate was she wasn't buying this beautifully processed, shot, lit, retouched white flower. She was buying something that represented her relationship with a very particular flower. And I don't know if it's because that's something that she, you know, used to grow or, some family thing with her mom or, you know, who knows what the story was, but she had a personal connection to something. This photographer and Lothdale. I think there's so many examples in, in photography where we can get so hung up on what we think makes a beautiful photograph and lose perspective on why someone would want to pay for our skills as a photographer. Yeah. Also in, in retouching, I mean, many of us, we, we tend to work to impress our peers, but ultimately we have to impress our clients. And if we deliver what they expect, then we our job is basically done and we, we've done well. So because they are paying our bills and not our friends and social media peers uh, that might actually critique us for what we do. Right. And it sounds so simple, but it's the mistake I see just about everybody making. I mean, we all like to get praise and clients are not the best in getting feedback that satisfies this need. Ultimately, you have to work your way around that and saying, okay, this is a business. I work for money. Maybe we also post images to get some pleasant feedback or not, but it shouldn't be our main intent to just work. To, the work should make feel us better and not the appreciation of other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, it's great that we get to do something we love, but you know, no one's going to pay you to have fun. They're going to pay you to do something that's meaningful to them. Yeah. I think meaningful is a good way to end the episode. <laughs> Let's sum things up again in terms of your retouching and what you're doing. We talked about your setup at home uh, that you can basically travel with. You have your calibrated monitor at home. You are using Lightroom and uh, using smart previews when you're on the go and don't have access to everything. 
which is a neat way to keeping most files accessible. Then obviously we talked about Lumensia, this tool you have created for luminance mask and make it very easy to have this visual feedback that Photoshop can give you. And yeah, we ended with some amazing advice for people and I have to thank you for making the time also. Again, the, the links to the tool, to your portfolio in the show notes. And yeah, unfortunately we can't say when Lumensia version 8 is going to come out. We will keep people updated. Maybe it's going to be out when this episode is out. Then you will find the link in the show description. And I have to say, Greg, thank you for spending the time again. It was a pleasure meeting you. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. And yeah, maybe we can figure out an upcoming episode for updates at some point in the future. I'd be happy to help. Yeah, anytime. Okay. Again, thanks. And that's basically a wrap. All right. Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. Okay, guys, this has been it. Episode number 34 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast is a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for staying this long. I really appreciate it. Again, if you like the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. If you get anything out of it, I'm happy to hear from you. Um, sometimes we have listeners message us what they like about the podcast, but it's still a rarity. And I'd like for you to comment. Uh, go to our website, boutiqueretouching.com. There's a comment section. You can comment to each post or even the podcast episodes. So that's where we like to interact with it. We also have a Facebook group that you can join and you find all the information at boutiqueretouching.com. And now, yeah, I say thanks for listening again and I talk to you in the next episode. <laughs>